Amen. Well, please turn now with me in your Bibles to Isaiah and chapter 55. So we continue on in our studies through this book that has been called the Fifth Gospel. And we come this morning to Isaiah 55. We'll look at verses 6 through 13. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall bring forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Let us pray. Lord our God, Your Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces down to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. As we come to the study of Your Holy Word this morning, we pray that it would do its work within us, that the sword of the Spirit would be at work in our hearts to form us more into the image of our Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, we pray that it would convert, we pray that it would sanctify, and all to the glory of God. Amen. The offer of the gospel that is held out to this fallen world could not be more abundant and rich. It could not be more full and more free. It's what we saw last week, wasn't it, at the beginning of this chapter. If you want to understand the offer that Christianity holds out to this sinful world, it is found in the first five chapters of Isaiah 55. There is Scarcely, I think, a better description, a better illustration of the invitation that the church holds out to this world. In John 3.16, we have the most famous encapsulation of the gospel. You know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. We can go one step further. John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? 
not to condemn the world, but to save it. He came into the world so that anyone and everyone, regardless of who they are, where they come from, or what they have done, can be saved from the guilt of their sins and from the wrath of God that stands against them in their sins, that they might be given life, even eternal life, life forever with God. And what does that mean? How are we to encapsulate it? How are we to conceive of it or envision it? Well, in the first five verses of chapter 55, Isaiah gives us that that vivid scene, that vivid illustration. You remember how Isaiah depicted it for us. He said, listen, it is like a beggar who has been invited into the king's feast. Do you remember these verses, as we saw last week, they paint for us a picture of a man coming in from a life of destitution, scraping together a life for himself, going from scrap to scrap, and being brought in to sit at this table of luxurious satisfaction. Do you remember the word that goes to him, come in, friend? It's free. Come in, come and buy without money. The call goes out. The price has been paid. You just come in now and enjoy the manifold benefits. It's the gospel. You are destitute in your sin, helpless in your sin, wretched in your sin, but God invites you to come in and find rest and peace and joy and satisfaction at His table. And how can you come? Because Jesus Christ has paid the price. He has done the work. He has secured your entry into the lavish blessings of the nearer presence of God. It is so good. It is so good. It is so rich. It is so free. It is on offer to anyone and everyone. Come and put your faith in Christ, and you will be given eternal life. It's so good that, that Isaiah, he can't stop talking about it. And so, having given us such a lavish and vivid encapsulation of it in the first five verses, he just continues on in verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord, he says, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Well, why, Isaiah? Well, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that just a perfect encapsulation of the Christian message, of the gospel that we hold out to this fallen world? Turn from your sins, seek the Lord, and what will you find in him? Nothing but compassion an abundant pardon. It is glorious. There is nothing hard or burdensome about the gospel. No rigors of rules that must be kept to earn the love of God. No rituals that must be endured. No real cost that must be borne. All that the gospel asks is that you give up your sin and hold fast to Jesus. And the promise is that all of the blessings of heaven will be yours. But yet, 
we know that there are so many who don't hear this gospel and flee to the Lord that He might have compassion on them. There are some, as we were so painfully confronted this week, who don't just reject this gospel, but viscerally hate this gospel to the point that they want to do violence to those who hold it dear. There are those who walk in the footsteps of Cain, and in their hatred of this gospel, and in their hatred of the God who offers it, seek to eradicate from the face of the earth all who hold it dear. There are some who hear this gospel, and instead of it being like a balm to their troubled souls, is more like water being poured on a grease fire, and their hearts rage against this invitation. And mercifully, they are few. But we know many more, don't we, who hear this gospel and despite its fullness and its freeness, still conclude that they would rather hold on to their sin than forsake their ways and their thoughts and return to the Lord. They would rather turn away from this banquet and go back to raking through the dumpsters of their sin. It's the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, isn't it, in Luke 18. You remember that man? He comes up to Jesus and he says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a man, we could say, who's seeking heaven. And do you remember what Jesus says to him? Keep the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And this man says, apparently with all honesty, because Jesus nor Luke cast any doubt on it, he says, all these I have kept from my youth. This is a moral man seeking heaven. And Jesus says to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Jesus says, give up these little scraps that you have on earth. Give away this paltry little wealth that you hold to, and, and you will be given treasures in heaven. And what was his response? When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. It's an extraordinary vignette. This man wants to be saved. He wants eternal life. He is not raging against heaven. And even when he decides to reject the gospel, he is despondent as he does so. He becomes very sad, Luke says, not raging, not pridefully self-confident, downcast, but yet he turns away from Jesus. And why? Because he loved his wicked way. His whole life was built on his wealth his significance, his security, his hopes, and his dreams. It who's who he was. He was the rich man, and he could not conceive of a life without it. You see, the reason why the gospel is so abhorrent to so many 
is because to become a Christian, you have to realize verses 8 and 9. What is it that God says? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the offense of the gospel, isn't it? That's right where it hits hard against our pride. The price of admission into the king's banquet is the realization that God is God and you are not. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, infinitely higher, you will never get to the end of the heavens. God says, that is as high as my ways are, higher than your ways. The rub is that as rich and free as the gospel is to lay hold of it, we have to admit that we are profoundly wrong. We have to admit that the way we have been living our lives has been profoundly wrong that the things that we thought were right are things that are wrong, that the lengths through which we saw ourselves in this world was fundamentally distorted, that in our thinking our premise was wrong and therefore our conclusion was wrong. For some, that admission is too much. It's one of the reasons why Evangelism gets harder as people get older. I think most of us know just through experience that most people who make professions of faith in Christ do so in high school or college. And there are many reasons for that. They are striking out on their own. They're thinking for themselves. They're, they're in an environment that is encouraging them to think critically about how the world works, freed from the family home. They are thinking for themselves about how it all fits together. They are primed to hear the message of the gospel and respond to it in faith. But most people respond to the gospel in high school or college because that is the time of their lives where they have the least to lose. If a 19-year-old admits that the way he has been living his life was wrong, he has little to lose. But as life gets on, that cost gets greater. The admission that you have lived 30, 40, 50 years of your life on a wrong premise is a hard pill to swallow. I remember sitting with two faithful Christians who had not come to know Christ until the later years of their lives. And I remember sitting at their kitchen table and talking to them about this extraordinary, later in life conversion, after lives that were lived very self-sufficiently, self-confidently, self-reliantly, they, they'd been broken by the gospel. And, and as the catechism says, King Jesus had subdued them to Himself, and it was glorious. But I remember sitting with them at that table, and they just lamented the years, in the words of Joel 2, the years that the locusts had eaten. They were thankful for their conversion. They were thankful that Jesus had not let them go. But as they looked back on their lives, how they were filled with remorse at these many years in which everything that they had 
thought and done, it was wrong because it wasn't for the glory of God. It can be hard to look back and see those many years apart from Christ, but listen again to how Isaiah describes the riches that are on offer in verses 12 and 13. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You hear what Isaiah is saying? It is the promise of Joel 2. Well, these dear saints use Joel 2 to process and describe their many years apart from Christ. Joel 2.25 is actually extraordinary good news, for it is there that the Lord says that He will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. That's what Isaiah is saying. It is lamentable to spend years apart from Christ, but Isaiah says, but listen, you lose nothing by finally yielding and saying, I have been wrong and I will come to the Lord because the future that awaits any and all who come to Christ is glorious and magnificent, almost beyond our ability to comprehend. We can almost hear the pleading of Isaiah, can't we? He comes back again and again describing for his readers the copious riches that are to be found through faith in Christ. He circles back again, and here he paints for his readers this picture of a new world. One commentator described these verses as a fireworks display of bright hope. Isaiah says, this is what all those who come to God in faith and repentance will receive. It's a picture of a new earth freed from the weight of sin. It's Romans 8, isn't it? What is it that the apostle said? Romans 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, they don't just, they just don't compare. It's what Jesus was trying to get the rich man to see. He had great wealth on this earth, but it didn't even compare to the riches of heaven that were on offer to him in Christ. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul pictures that day when this expansive redemption will be revealed not just the salvation of sinners, but with the salvation of sinners, the inauguration of this great and glorious new creation, a day when the victory of Christ will be seen, not just in plucking one or two out of this earth and placing them into an ethereal heaven, but where the saving work of Christ will be manifest as all of creation gets up from its groaning with a sigh of relief and rejoices in all that God has done for it in Christ. 
That day when the glories of salvation are not just seen in signs and symbols, but rather the fullness of redemption is secured in its whole and not just in part. You can't help but wonder if Isaiah 55 was not in Paul's head as he wrote Romans 8. Because isn't that just exactly what Isaiah writes here? It's the picture that Isaiah anticipates in verses 12 and 13, the redeemed creation. Now he he anthropomorphizes it in order to to communicate just how joyous that great day will be. And he says, listen, the, the, the inanimate creation will burst out in singing. The trees are going to clap their hands, he says. Righteousness will be brought to be established on the earth and And all of the cosmos will give praise to God. Isaiah's point is to urge his readers to see the glorious inheritance that is theirs if only they put their faith in Christ. If only they put their faith in the suffering servant of Isaiah 54. If only they come and forsake their wicked ways and their unrighteous thoughts and return to the Lord. Yes, you have to give those things up. You have to forsake things that you have held dear for for 19 years of your life, for 30 years of your life, for 50 years of your life, for, for 70 years of your life. The gospel says you must give them up. You have to admit that they were poor saviors. You have to admit that they were hollow gospels. You have to admit, using uh, Jeremiah's illustration, that they were leaky cisterns that, that always held out the promise of refreshment but never held any water. You have to swallow your pride. You have to confess that you've been wrong. It is a cost. But what I, as I want you to see, what, what I want you to see is that what you get in return is unimaginably better than anything you could ever give up. It's a beggar coming in from digging in dumpsters to get scraps of food, sitting at the banquet table of the king. It's a world of joy and peace. It's a world of harmony and equity where you, a a rebel and insurgent against God and His kingdom, are welcomed in as friends, as children, as, as more than that, as sons specifically, heirs of that kingdom to, to be with God and at rest in Him. But that will be too much for some. And their attachment to this present world will prove too strong to let go and move to the heavenly world. But Christians don't get despondent. Because look at what God says right in the middle of our passage. His word will not return void. It's an odd section, this, isn't it? Right in the middle here but it does two things. It asserts the power and the glory of God, and it reassures the people of God. If we follow the logical sequence here, what we find in verses 10 and 11 are actually given primarily as further rationale for coming to the Lord in humble faith, right? Let's go through it. Let's let's follow the sequence and follow the fours, right? As 
Jonas has been teaching us so excellently as we go through Hebrews and Sunday school, so much theology is pinned on conjunctions. Seek the Lord while he may be found, verse 6. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Verse 8, for because this is the reason why you should do this, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Verse 9, for because as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 10, for because as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Right, from verse 8 on through verse 11, we are given this repeating rationale for the exhortation to seek the Lord while he may be found. And just as in verses 8 and 9, we are challenged in verses 10 and 11 here to see our weakness and our creatureliness and to return to the Lord in humble reliance. Right? We are challenged to see that, that regardless of how we respond to the gospel, the purposes of God will inevitably continue to march onward. It is a humbling word that we are given here to see that our rebellion against the crown rights of God are feeble and useless. You can rage against the King of heaven all you want. It does not move him one iota. It is the realization that to borrow from Jonathan Edwards, our rebellion against God, our rage against His rule and His reign, our rejection of the gospel, and even our violence against the people of God has as much ability to stop the purposes of God as a spider's web has to stop a falling rock. The purposes of God will always be achieved. The Word of God will always accomplish the thing intended for it to accomplish. It's another way of saying Psalm 115, verse 3, an anchor verse that you, that you need to memorize and store in your heart. What is it that, that Psalm 115, verse 3 says? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He's not dependent on you. He's not threatened by you. All things are under His control, and in the end, all of history will fall out exactly according to His holy will. It's not, perhaps, what we would call the most winsome approach to sharing the gospel. But you understand it is a crucial part of sharing the gospel. To come to Christ means confessing your need, confessing His greatness, yielding yourself to Him. But maybe more than that, all this is doing is revealing what we already know in our hearts. All of us, I think, have a radical insecurity harbored within us, a fear that we will one day be exposed. And here the gospel comes through Isaiah, and it rips your facade right off. And it says that God is not fooled by it, and He is not threatened by it. But this isn't done to humiliate you. 
It's done in a sense to free you. God is in control. He knows you through and through. And what you hesitate to admit to others, what you hesitate perhaps even to admit to yourself, He already knows, and yet still He bids you come. He knows you are weak. He knows that you are not as good as you pretend you are. And still He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Be at peace in me. You can control your life. You can't ensure that your purposes are always done. You don't always succeed in the things that you attempt, but God does. And so there is no fear. If you come to Him, He can and will do what He has said, and He will bring you into this glorious new kingdom, this glorious new world. He will wipe away the guilt of all of your sin. He will make you new. He will satisfy you with good things. There is no risk in the gospel. If you come to God in Christ, you will receive the fullness of the riches of the gospel that He has promised. But Christians, do you hear how verses 10 and 11 free us from despondency? We can get so downcast and discouraged, especially living in the day in which we live. Last week, I found myself looking at a list of properties that the Church of Scotland is selling. And it will break your heart beautiful churches, rural churches, urban churches, ancient churches. One property I looked at dating to the the 17th century. Places where the people of God have worshipped, rafters that have reverberated with the singing of hymns to God, but now lying empty for sale, destined to be a home or apartments or a warehouse or a bar. I'll be honest, it it sent me down a spiral of discouragement. I began to think of churches I know that are in the midst of turmoil, older churches with declining congregations, churches with contentious sessions and discouraged pastors. I thought of this shooting in Nashville and the horrific tendency of our media to portray the shooter as a victim. There are times we look at this world and easily we can think, what is the point? No one is going to respond to this message. No one's going to give up their wicked ways and their evil thoughts. This gospel is so anti-everything, it seems these days, that who on earth is going to bear the cost of putting their faith in Christ? But hear how this text rebukes my faithless heart. Hear how this text encourages us in the work. God says, so shall my word be. It goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Regardless of the wickedness that is found on the earth, God says, my word will never return void. It will always accomplish the purpose for which it is sent out, even in our day. We may live in a day of small things. We may live in a day of closing churches and shrinking Christendom, but the Word of God is as powerful as ever, and it will succeed in the thing for which it was sent out. Now, sometimes, 
Like with Isaiah, the purpose is the hardening of those who hear it. Do you remember Isaiah's call? Isaiah 6, verse 9 and 10. God says to him that go and preach, Isaiah, but understand you will preach and they will not hear a word you say. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. That was Isaiah's commission. Isaiah didn't see the masses saved in his day, but the Word of God still did its appointed task. As someone said, the same fire that melts wax hardens clay. And maybe that's the purpose for which God has sent out His Word. But listen here, I think in Isaiah 55, in the midst of these glorious invitations to believe the gospel, in the midst of these lavish descriptions of the treasures of heaven given to all who come into the kingdom, I think here the emphasis is, is really more encouraging. The emphasis here is that even the hardest of hearts cannot resist the call of the gospel if it is accompanied by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. So things can look futile to us. Evangelism can seem futile but our work is simply to proclaim the gospel, to warn sinners of their danger, to invite them to put their trust in Christ, to tell them of the blessings of heaven for them in Christ, to urge them to come in and sit at this banquet. That's our work. And then we simply leave it to the Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord of His church, and all that He intends to be saved will be saved. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And it pleases Him to offer you this lavish salvation this morning. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Let us pray. Almighty God, how good You are to us. How manifold the mercies of God that you should send your Son to die for us. What is man that you should take thought of him? With dust and ashes and full of sin. But yet in Christ you offer us such a lavish and full gospel. I pray that those who hear the sermon but do not yet know Christ might find that today is the day of their salvation that they would relent from their rebellion against God, that they would give up their wicked ways, that they would come and find compassion and abundant pardon in God. I pray for those who know this gospel, that we might grasp more and more of its richness and its fullness, that we might delight ourselves all the more every day in the grace of God shown to us in Christ, that our inner disposition would not be one of hopelessness or despair or despondency, but one of joyful confidence that our, our God reigns. Father, hear us as we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.